want to open up to Genesis 19 and might want to just open up also put a mark in uh, Luke chapter 17. We're going to look at that briefly, but you might want to follow along there. But tonight we're going to look at the wife and the daughters of Lot. We're going to look at Genesis 19:26 and Genesis 30 through 38. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 32, Jesus told his disciples, remember Lot's wife. And that's kind of amazing. Well, it was to me anyway, that of, you know, Jesus told his disciples, remember Lot's wife. Why, again, to me is it so amazing is because when you think about it, there really wasn't much to remember her about or for. You know, it just mentions her here in, you know, in, in Genesis. Because there's not a lot written about her in Scripture to be remembered other than what's, what's mentioned in, in Luke. And only three other times in Scripture. And again, all in Genesis. Chapter 19, verse 15, 16, and 26. That's where she's last mentioned. And even though there's not much written about her, there's a lot of good, important lessons to be learned from her disobedience. So let's begin with chapter 19, verse 26. And it reads, But his wife, that is Lot's wife, looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. The angels had told Lot and his family when they left for Sodom, verse 17, do not look behind you but there's always that one in the crowd and here it was mrs lot who disobeyed god's word when she looked behind her she showed a lot about her character and it really doesn't seem you know like a big deal you know so what she looked behind her what's the big deal well it's a big deal because God said, don't do it. And I think we take God lightly and his word, and we think, well, God doesn't really mean what he says. Or God's not really going to do what he said he would do if we did. It's kind of like we dare God. Like as parents, we tell our children, you better not do that, or you're going to get in trouble. And they give you that look, and they just stand there and, they kind of want to test you and see if you're going to do what you said you're going to do. And so it is a big deal because God said, don't do it. That's what makes it a big deal. But it showed the nature of Mrs. Lot's heart. I've given her the name Mrs. Lot so we don't have to call her Lot's wife. Looking back showed her desire for the world. It showed her, it showed her defiance of God's orders and it showed her disbelief in God's word and her unappreciation for God's mercy the main reason she looked back is because her heart's desires were in Sodom and so this is what led to her ruin you see you can't have your affections on the things of the world without sooner or later those things ruining your life wrong desires can lead to ruin. And if you allow your affections to go for the wrong things, it can bring unimaginable harm to your life and to the life of others. The first before Luke's text, 
that says, remember Lot's wife, it focuses on the danger of having our affections on the wrong things. Luke 17, 31 says this, In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. In general, this verse is, instructs us not to be so attached to the things of the world that we'll miss out on our salvation. And this was a leading problem with Lot's wife that brought about her end. She was so attached to Sodom that she looked back. Maybe she would have gone back to get her belongings if she hadn't been struck by the Lord on the spot. A lot of people will rush into a burning house and die for something of little value. They won't give up the world for Jesus. So they perish. Mrs. Lotz, looking back, was a sign of defiance. She disobeyed a very clear command just before she decided to look back. And that brought her life to an end. In looking back to Sodom, she clearly rebelled against God. Doing so was a blatant act, straight up of defying God. Mrs. Lotz looking back was also a sign of unbelief. To show unbelief, a person doesn't have to stand up in front of everybody and say, I don't believe the word of God. They don't have to stand up in front of everybody and denounce God's word. Unbelief can be seen in the way a person behaves. And every act of disobedience shows a person's unbelief. And Mrs. Lot didn't believe the warning that she was given. She didn't think it would hurt anything to look back, obviously. And this idea that God doesn't bring judgment on us because of our sins, hey, that's nothing new. That's an old idea. It started way back in the Garden of Eden when Eve was warned not to eat of the forbidden fruit. Why is it we sometimes, and a lot of times, have to learn the hard way? We want to test God. Did he really say? Did he really mean what he said? Is he going to do what he said he's going to do? Mrs. Lotz looking back was also a sign of unappreciation. Think of it. God in his mercy sends two angels to warn about the coming judgment. Plus one of the angels literally took her by the hand and pulled her out of Sodom. And then instructed Lot and their daughters where to go, where they would be safe from the destruction. She should have been thankful for the great and gracious undeserved favor that God showed them. The least she could have done is obey what the angels told her to do. Instead, she does the opposite. She didn't show one bit of appreciation for God's favor. And how often we do the same thing. God does so much for us, and we're still not willing to obey him. When we pray, we ask Him to do many things for us. And then He answers us. But then when, in return, we don't do what He asks of us. Disobedience is truly a show of, unshameful, or of shameful ungratefulness. Mrs. Lot didn't get away with it, though. She didn't go, it didn't go without punishment. She brought judgment upon herself because of her disobedience. And as a result, verse 26 tells us she became a pillar of salt. 
She wouldn't do what God wanted her to do, so God's judgment came upon her. With her judgment, though, being death, obviously what she received wasn't remedial. I mean, it wasn't meant to be corrective. It was a final judgment. It wasn't to, you know, uh, to correct her ways, you know, to get her back on the right track. There wouldn't be any more warnings. There would be no gracious, no more gracious rescues, no more hope. It was all over for her. She couldn't repent. She couldn't receive forgiveness and escape God's judgment. She deserved what, you know, she deserved her offense. Rebelling against God can lead man into this irreversible situation. And so this is a strong warning that we have to take serious if we really care about the security of our soul and our life. Mrs. Lot learned the hard way two important truths about what God says. What he says is trustworthy and what he says is good for you. You can trust God's word to be true. If he says you will be destroyed when Sodom is destroyed, if you turn around and look back at Sodom, you'll be destroyed. This problem of unbelief in God's word started, like I said, in the Garden of Eden. God's word was proven to be true as it is all the time. It's always the case. If Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, they wouldn't have died. Mrs. Lot didn't give due respect to the warning that, that, that she received. So she was slain when she looked back because God's word is true. He means what he says. Men are always complaining about God's commands. Oh, they're too restrictive. Oh, you know, God doesn't want us to enjoy life. He, you know, he, he limits our pleasure. But it's just the opposite. When you obey God's word, it will always result in more freedom and pleasure in the long run. Mrs. Lot found this truth to be true in a very powerful way. And even though the command to not look back did restrict where she could, uh, where she could look, it was to her benefit. It was for her good. God's commands are not meant to hurt us. They're designed to help us. They're not to be a burden. They're to be a blessing. As John 1, uh, 1 John 5, 3 says, His commandments are not burdensome. Don't complain about God's commands. Thank Him for them. Because again, He knows all things. His commands are coming from infinite wisdom. The pillar of salt that she became, it was a memorial. It was a monument of her judgment for her shameful disobedience. Not exactly the kind of monument or memorial you want to be remembered by. This lesson we mostly want to point out here is that the pillar of salt emphasizes the destructive and deadly work of sin. First, it emphasizes that sin reduces, reduces value. Sin made Mrs. Lot a worthless thing. Now, salt isn't a worthless thing in itself, but being a pillar of salt in her situation certainly made her a worthless thing. Secondly, the pillar of salt emphasizes that sin removes honor. And it kept her from receiving the honor of a decent burial. And in Jewish times, a burial was important. She had no burial of any kind. 
Sin does not bring honor, it brings dishonor. Third, the pillar of salt emphasizes sin makes you barren. The pillar of salt only, only, would only make all the land around the pillar barren. And many of God's saints have gone from spiritual fruitfulness to spiritual barrenness. Why? Because they let sin control their lives. But why did Lot and his daughters miss the judgment? Well, there are two main reasons why Mrs. Lot didn't escape the judgment. And they involve stewardship and shortcoming. She was a poor steward of her spiritual opportunities. And she didn't go far enough in her spiritual interests. Stewardship. She had more advantages in uh, enabling her to escape judgment than any other woman in Sodom or the other cities. One advantage was her marriage. She was married to, as Peter says, a righteous man. And she would hear from her husband valuable, God-respecting truths that should have kept her from the destruction. The second advantage was mercy. She was an object of great mercy. Again, in God's mercy, he sends two angels from heaven to warn Lot, to warn her, and her family. Now, he didn't have to do that. He did it anyway. The third advantage that she didn't take advantage of was the messages that she received. She was warned over and over about the coming destruction. The, angel, the angels warned Lot's family at night. They warned them in their home. They warned them in the morning, and they warned them at the outskirts of Sodom. The warning messages were from heavenly creatures, angels. And they were urgent messages, they were very clear messages, and they were very sufficient. There was enough said as to what needed to be due and what was going to happen. The fourth advantage were the messengers themselves. Think of it, she entertained the heavenly messengers in her home overnight. How many people do you know that have entertained angels? The fifth advantage uh, that she had was a miracle. She saw the angels perform a miracle when they blinded the homosexuals in such a way they couldn't get into the house. I mean, all of these things should have encouraged her greatly to follow the angels' orders. So Mrs. Lot had a righteous husband. She was an object of great mercy. She was, re she was warned repeatedly about the judgment. She entertained angels. She saw the angels perform a miracle. And after all of that, she still perished. She was a terrible steward of her spiritual opportunities. And a lot of people are going to go to hell for the same thing. Great spiritual opportunities to know God, to know of his wonderful redemption, to know what Jesus Christ did for us upon that cross, how he shed his blood. And how we can be saved from our sins and have a new life, be born again. All of it in the word of God. When we remember Mrs. Lot, we're instructed about the great danger. We, we learn from this about not going far enough spiritually. Mrs. Lot came close to being saved. <laughs> you know how many times I've heard that? Oh, they're so close as if they feel they're saved. 
And, you know, she was, she was closer to Zoar than all those in Sodom, but she still perished like those who were in Sodom because she didn't make it to Zoar. I know a person can be so close to being saved, but just as lost and dead as the wicked, ungodly people of Sodom or as the heathen pagans of some faraway line some faraway land many people including christians talk about going too far as a christian oh you, you know you're you're too spiritual you know you've become an extremist you become fanatical and these are the people who complain that that messages in the church are too long oh the church has such strict standards they're so you know and they they'd call it legalist legalism Oh, there's too much time spent on Bible study. And then, you know, it, it can be bad for your children always being in church. Or, you know, going to Christian schools and colleges. I don't know if you read about this, but John Piper, well-known Bible teacher, he stirred up controversy after tweeting about the fitness of coffee in church sanctuaries. A lot of churches, and I've been, I went to one before, they have a coffee bar in the foyer and they get up during the service while the preacher is preaching to get coffee. And when he brought it up, they got angry. I mean, incredible. Acting like the like church is a coffee bar or whatever else they want to bring in. He says, can we reassess? This is what he said to him. Can we reassess whether Sunday coffee sipping in the sanctuary fits? And then he quoted Hebrews 12, 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Hey, we're in here to worship the holy almighty God. If we're in here to do anything else, then we need to go somewhere else because we can do that anywhere. But we definitely have to worry about becoming, uh, we, I'm sorry, we don't have to worry about becoming too spiritual because I really don't know of anybody that's too spiritual. Or too saved. You know, being too close to God. Or going too far for God. There's no such thing. The Bible encourages us to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. What we need to be concerned about is not knowing the word of God well enough. Not being spiritual enough. Not being godly enough. Not being holy enough. Not being close enough to God. Not going far enough with God and for God. There's where the great danger was with Mrs. Lot. She didn't go far enough when it came to spiritual things. She went farther than most, but it wasn't far enough. She needed to go to Zoar, but she didn't quite make it. She came up short in regards to salvation. She almost made it. Like people will say, well, she's almost a believer. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. Almost a Christian is like almost pardoned but hanged. Like almost rescued but was burned in the house. A saved man that is almost saved is damned. Well put by Mr. Spurgeon. And then the last scene of Lot in Scripture deals with his two daughters. In Genesis 19 verses 30 through 38, which we're going to look at now. After Lot separated from Abraham, his life went continually downward. Let's look at verse 30. 
Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Lot's request to go to Zoar instead of the mountains, where God wanted him to go, as he was first ordered, was granted by the angels. They answered his request to go to Zoar instead of where God wanted him to go, to the mountains. All his family made it except for Mrs. Lot. But he didn't stay in Zoar for very long. Remember, this is where he, you know, uh, he wanted to go. He didn't want to go to the mountains. But he didn't stay in Zoar very lo- for very long. And his daughter soon moved out of Zoar to a place in the mountains where Lot had wanted uh, to go earlier. I'm sorry, where he wanted to go earlier, but God sent to Zoar. The thing that prompted Lot to move out of Zoar with his two daughters to another place to live was fear. Look at verse 30. It says, he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. He was afraid of the fires, most likely, that were still burning there. And the wickedness that was still there. When God sent fire and brimstone on the wicked cities to destroy them, it started a great blaze that didn't stop in just a few minutes or a few hours. The fires would last a long time, and they could have easily lasted for weeks. And they didn't have any local fire departments. They didn't have anybody that, would, that could put it out. So they would just have to burn out of control. And the other thing that caused Lot to fear was the wickedness of Zoar. Zoar, like the other cities, were also a wicked place, and, and he was spared only for the sake of Lot. After seeing the wickedness in Zoar, and knowing what this wickedness brought upon Sodom, Lot, upon Sodom, Lot could easily be concerned uh, uh, because of this wickedness. Zoar's destruction was also just around the corner. So he feared these things. He was worried. He, so he would be worried about getting out of Zoar so he wouldn't be caught in the destruction that would come upon it. The judgment on Sodom was enough to convince Lot that God truly judges sin. But Lot's fear, no matter what the reasons, was totally unjustified. The message from heaven was very clear in Genesis 19.21 that Zoar wouldn't be destroyed. But Lot didn't totally believe what God said. He didn't trust God to keep his word. So at the bottom of all his fears really was unbelief. Unbelief in God's message always produces fear. It's faith in God's word that brings us peace, peace and trustworthiness of God. Walking by sight and not faith in God's word. Hey, that's a bad way to walk. But Lot, hey, that was Lot. He'd always been walking by sight. And that's why he chose the cursed area of Sodom to begin with to go and live there when he separated from Abraham. You see, he let his eyes make the decision for him. And now, with all of the fires burning and all the wickedness around him in the area, walking by sight would only make him anxious, worried, concerned about his his, his well-being. Faith could have comforted him in this situation, but he wasn't walking by faith. Rebuking Lot for not working by faith doesn't mean that we're to ignore everything that we see in our circumstances, As if, hey, it really doesn't exist. But the reason Lot is condemned here is because he didn't bring the word of God into the picture. That is always the problem. 
We should never look at our circumstances apart from God's word or you will make some very costly decisions. Circumstances, man, they can be very convincing. They, you know, our emotions get the best of us. We see things how they are. They look terrible. They look irreversible. They look like nothing could help, nothing could fix them. You know, that's the way it looks to the natural eye. But you see, faith makes the Word of God more convincing than the circumstances. The Word of God makes our circumstances, you know, we live by faith. The, the, the Word of God guides us. So the Word of God, again, faith makes the Word of God more convincing than the circumstances, and the faith that you have guides your life mainly by God's Word, not mostly by circumstances. We can't allow the circumstances in our life to dictate to us what we're going to do. Now, what was it that made Lot change from Zoar to the mountain? Because it was the wrong place for him to be. Lot had originally been told to go to the mountain. That's where God had originally told him to go, but he didn't want to because it was too far. Zoar was closer. And God allowed him to go to Zoar. Now he wants to go to the mountain where God said to go earlier. But he complained and wanted his orders changed to go to Zoar, so his orders were changed per his request. Worst thing God could allow to happen is for us to get what we ask for. And then we really do get what we ask for. But as, but as always the case, he soon found out that what he wanted wasn't as satisfactory as what God wanted for him. But God went along with Lot. But now Lot isn't happy with what he wanted. And he wants to go back to the mountain, but it's too late. God's already sealed the deal. Lot might go to the mountain on his own. He might say, well, you know, I'm going to the mountain. That's where God wanted me to go in the first place. I'm going to go to the mountain. But you know what? Going to the mountain would be an act of disobedience. And the blessing that he would have received in the first place, if he'd have gone when God first told him to go, he's not going to receive them. Those blessings would not be any longer available to him. You see, when you insist and persist on your own choice and not God's choice, you, forget, you forfeit God's choice. And you will forfeit, forfeit his blessings that he meant for you to have. If you get tired of your choice, you can't get them back. You can't get back to it. And you can't get God's choice whenever you want. The only way you can get God's choice back is if God offers it to you again like he did Jonah when he ordered Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh. That's, that's an exception. Usually the first choice is lost forever. So beware of refusing God's choice because it's the way to never-ending dis dissatisfaction and frustration. Going to the wrong place seems to be what we do. Lord, I don't want to go there. We have a tendency for going to the wrong place or wanting to be in the wrong place. But being in the wrong place brings poverty to our soul. Listen again to verse 30. Look at it. Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Think of it. Lot left 
a house in Sodom, empty-handed to live in a cave in a mountain. All because of his worldly lifestyle. Man, Lot had lived it up in the world for years. But look at him now. He has nothing. And where's he living? In a cave. You see, living where God has not led you to live puts you in great danger and it can ruin your life. Lot moved to the mountain out of God's will. And as a result, he commits moral sins, terrible moral sins. We might think that because God lets us take our little detours, that we can change God's will whenever we want to without experiencing any wicked consequences. But that's never the case. It's always very foolish not to yield, to submit totally to the will of God. Now you might wonder, wonder how a place that was not that long ago, the will of God, all of a sudden now is such a bad place for him. You know, wait a minute, wait, well, God, this is where you wanted to be in the first place, though he didn't go when God first wanted him to. He took his little detour. And now he's back, so he's going, why isn't it good for me now? It's a bad place because now he's gone there under a lot, much different circumstances. He goes now without his wife. And probably, if he had gone to the mountain earlier like the angels had told him to, his wife wouldn't have, wouldn't have looked back. You see, in, obedience encourages obedience. But compromise encourages compromise. Lot's compromising request to go to Zoar would only encourage Lot's wife to think that the orders to not look back were also were not absolute. They could be disobeyed and not go to the mountain with any problem. If Lot's wife would have gone with him to the mountain, incest wouldn't have happened because, you see, her presence would have kept it from happening. So what was God's will earlier with all of the protective advantages of God's will is no longer the case, though it's still the same mountain. Instead, the mountain is far from people with the privacy of the cave. That place now only becomes a place of encouraging wicked behavior where before it would have been God's place of blessing and protection. You see, the will of God has to be done without delay if we want to obtain the blessed benefits of doing the will of God. Look at verses 31 and 32. Now the firstborn, or the oldest of the daughters, now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. What she said here in verses 31 and 32 was her justification for doing something really evil. And you know, when we want to do something bad enough, man, we will look and look and look until we justify it. What she's suggesting here makes it look like what her and her younger sister are doing is okay. Because it's something we have to do. Our father is old. You know, there's no man on the earth to come into us so we can have children to carry on the family name. 
we got to do this. But you see, this great desire for having children and how important it was to women in Bible times still was no justification at all for what they were going to do. No justification for incest. But absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing should ever take that kind of priority in their lives that they throw character out the window. And we have to be careful about the priorities that we have in our life. Character, that is, living the way God wants you to live should always have top priority in your life. But if you have to cheapen your character to carry out a goal that you want, that you, then you have the wrong priority on, the goal, on your goal. And be careful of talk that exaggerates the situation just in order to do the evil. The daughter said, hey, our father's old. There's no other men around so that we can carry on our father's name. Now, the future may look bleak. But again, do not let circumstances, don't look, let what's going on in, in, in the future, whatever it might be, don't let those things dictate to you the truth about the situation. Because it doesn't give an accurate picture of circumstances and situations. It twists and it perverts all that it can in order to support or give support to the evil, to doing the evil. So the daughter's strategy was in verse 32, let's make our father drink wine and then we'll lie with him to help them with their plan. They would get their father drunk. Now, I was thinking... What made her think of this to get her father drunk to carry out her evil plan? Maybe was her father so, uh, maybe he was a drinker. Would the oldest daughter suggest this idea maybe if he hadn't drank before? So both daughters get their father drunk and they lay with their father sexually. Verse 36 says, thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. So their evil plan worked. Both girls had a boy by their father. Look at verses 37 and 38 now. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Notice Lot had nothing to do in picking the boys' names. The daughters picked out the names. This is really interesting because it shows, the names show the depraved character of the two girls. Because you see, the meaning of the names show that they weren't ashamed of what they did. The name Moab means from the father. So in naming her son Moab, she's saying, he's my son from my father. The name Ben-Ami means son of my people. In other words, an offspring of her own kind, specifically a relative. The Bible commentator Leopold says, the meaning of Ben-Ami contains a veiled allusion to the father's paternity, the child is the son of her nearest relative. So 
So the names make it known without shame how the daughters got their children. Both names said it was incest. And so the two nations resulted from Moab and Ben-Ami, uh, okay, was the result of the, of the two daughters. Moab was the father of the Moabites, and Ben-Ami was the father of the children of Ammon. The two nations did not have a good relationship with God's chosen people, the Jews. And later on, they were some of the cruelest enemies of Abraham's descendants. From the very beginning of Israel as a nation, these two nations were hostile to Israel. And we can see all that's going now, going on now in the Middle East. The warnings of these two nations against Israel remind us of what Paul said in Galatians 5.17. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another. The flesh and the spirit cannot ever be partners. They're contrary to one another. And we see this truth clearly in the case of the animosity of Ishmael, born after the flesh, Abraham and Hagar. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. I'm sorry, yeah, and, and, and again, we see Isaac, born after the spirit. So you got Abraham, I'm sorry, you got Ishmael, who is the father of the Arab nation, a work of the flesh, and then you have the spirit, son born after the spirit, Isaac. There's no room for negotiation between the flesh and the spirit. There cannot be a union between the flesh and the spirit. Jesus Christ is a descendant of Lot. And this is where it begins to just really, it blows my mind now as we, as we, come to the, to the end of the, of the session here. Think of it. Jesus Christ is a descendant of Lot. Ruth was a Moabite who married Boaz of the tribe of Judah. From this relationship came a boy who was the grandfather of David. Boaz, Ruth's husband, begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse. Jesse begat David. We see that in Ruth 4, 21 and 22. And from David came the king of kings. In David, both Lot and Abraham are represented. The New Testament also makes reference to this when, when giving the genealogy of Christ. In Matthew 1, 5, and 5 through 56, Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David, the king of Israel. The fact that the line of Christ came from Lot, can you imagine? As well as Abraham helps to explain why this, this morally messy scene here from the life of Lot is given to us and in such detail. When it involves Jesus Christ, we learn. we learn the main reason why it's in the Bible. It's the same reason why the book of Ruth is given to us. And we can learn a lot of practical reasons from that book. But man, when we discover at the end how inseparably, inseparably related it is to Jesus, then we learn the main reason for it being in the Bible. Jesus Christ 
is the central theme of Scripture. And always remember, you know, that truth. Always remember that. And you'll understand why there's a lot of scriptures we look at. Or, or why did God put that in there? Why is that mentioned? Well, this will help us to remember and understand why many passages in the, in the Bible that puzzle us as to why they were included in the Bible. Because the main reason for it being in the Bible is Jesus. In closing, this truth about the relationship of Christ to Lot's son, Moab, it it highlights the grace of salvation. Imagine Jesus coming from the line of Lot. What grace. When we consider our soul's salvation, we see grace everywhere. And through this emphasis, we're instructed in the great truth that any soul can be saved if they will only come to Jesus and put their faith and trust in him for their soul's redemption. What grace it is for God to take a messy scene like this incense of Lot and his two daughters in a cave and then relate them so inseparably to the coming of Jesus. Amazing. And what grace it is that the story of Lot, a story of great failure, can, in spite of that fact, end with us looking at our wonderful Savior. Jesus Christ. It really is amazing grace. Never, there was one word that I was used to describe the story of Lot. It would be grace. Father, we thank you so much. For your amazing grace. Words can't even begin to describe your grace. What you've done for us. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. To see that amazing grace to praise and worship you for that amazing grace, to thank you for that amazing grace, God. And not to look at your grace as a license to sin, as a dumping ground for all of our wicked behavior, God. For you are holy and you are just and you will judge sin because you are holy and because you, you are righteous and because you do love us. So, Father, help us to 
Look at all the things that you show us and teach us, God. And help us to be all that you want us to be and have called us to be, God. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.